Morning, everyone. Uh, reading from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And I've got a some version of NIV. I don't think it's going to be exactly the same as on the screen. Um, so if it looks like I'm reading it wrong, we'll blame that. All right. 1 John chapter 2, from verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may confident we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The world does not know us. Sorry. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God continues to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who, is, who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Thank you. Uh, please keep your Bibles open. There's some really uh, interesting arguments that John makes in this passage. Um, it looks a little bit tricky the first time you, you glance over it, but we're going to pull it apart together and hopefully come to understand uh, this reasoning that he has uh, for the confidence that we have in God. Uh, when I was in high school, um, for some reason, I, I don't even know how I got a hold of it, but I ended up reading the Left Behind series. Some of you may have read it, some of you may be familiar with it. Uh, it's a fiction series, a, a Christian fiction series that's based entirely on a very literal and kind of bizarre at times reading of Revelation. Don't go and read it, like it's not worth it, it's not really well written, it's not very accurate. If you want to know what Revelation is about, uh, I've got some great books on it and you can look at our podcasts. Anyway, one of the, one of the things in this series that did intrigue me uh, when I was reading it is um, something that happened about halfway through the series, it's 13 books, so like you had to get a long way to get there. But anyway, what happened is at some point all the Christians who are left in the world at the time, they each get a mark on their forehead uh, which tells everyone that they're a Christian. Only Christian, Christians can see it. You can't see your own for some strange reason, but you get this mark, a vague cross-shaped kind of smudge they describe it as. Now, all the, the bizarre and logical things beside, uh, to the side, the, the thought kind of appealed to me because it made me think, well, 
how cool would it be if all you had to do to know if someone was a Christian was just to look at their forehead? I mean, that'd be really great, wouldn't it? I could tell for certain, yes, you're a Christian because I can see it on your forehead. You could say for sure, yes, I'm a Christian. You could see it on my forehead. That'd be really, that'd be really helpful, wouldn't it? But wouldn't it make you immensely confident too? Confident of all the things we read in the Bible? Wouldn't it make you really confident of some of those things that we just heard in that song? You think, well, yes, Jesus is coming back soon. I know I'm going to be all right because I've got his mark on my forehead. You know, it would be a source of great confidence, wouldn't it? How, how wonderful would it be to have that visible sign to know that you are Jesus's? That would be something really special, wouldn't it? But what if you did? What if you already had that sort of mark? What if there was already a really visible sign in your life that points to those beautiful spiritual realities? Well, actually, what John says in this reading is, there is that sort of mark. And if you're a Christian, you most definitely have it. It's, it's far better than just a cross-shaped smudge on your forehead. It's essentially a birth certificate, a marker of your identity. Clearly visible to everyone around you and confirming of that hope that we have in Jesus. Something that gives us absolute confidence when he returns. All Christians have that mark, John says. How is that possible? What does it look like? Well, that's what we're going to unpack as we work our way through this passage this morning. Now, you might have noticed as Ben was reading, right up at the top there is a wonderful promise that is made to all Christians. Uh, Look with me at verses 28 to 29 again. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Do you hear what John says there right in verse 28? We can be confident when Jesus comes. Not ashamed, or as some translations have it, not shrink back. In, in, in fear or in uncertainty, but absolutely 100% confident, confident to stand, confident to be glad, confident to be bold when Jesus returns. I mean, that's something special, isn't it? I don't think there's ever lived a Christian who at some point in their life didn't wonder or didn't look at the day of Jesus coming with some sort of fear or uncertainty or doubt. You know, Maybe I'll be embarrassed. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm a fraud. Maybe I'll somehow fall short. Uh, every Christian experiences that at some point or the other. And it is a terrifying fear. It is the kind of fear that, that grabs you close, isn't it? That keeps you up at night. And yet in these verses, John gives us an antidote. He gives us a promise, confidence. It can be yours. You can have it. How? By knowing who we are. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Who are God's people? Well, they are his children. 
They're not his employees. They're not his slaves or his subjects. They are his children. And they are his children because he has made them that. We weren't born into this world as his children. He has made us so. That's what John exclaims, isn't it? How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that that we should be called the children of God, and, and that's what we are. He's saying, look, God has done something amazing for you. The eternal, inconceivable riches of his love, he has lavished them upon you. And the result is he has made you his child. We, we say it sometimes, don't we? We say, you know, you, you can't choose your family. Uh, and we say that kind of in a derogatory sense, don't we? We wouldn't choose our family if we did have that choice. But do you know what? God's saying, I did choose my family. I, I chose every single one of you. I mean, we wouldn't have chosen ourselves. He shouldn't have chosen us because we weren't nice. We weren't lovely. We weren't adorable like, the, you know, the puppy or kitten you might adopt from the home. We, we weren't like that. But he chose us still. He lavished his love on us before we were nothing. Before we were no one, we were alone. And now we are God's, his precious, beloved children. Uh, I'll never forget the the feeling of holding our kids for the very first time after they've been born. That's a memory that just sticks. Uh, Look, I, I think it's a kind of a guy thing, but... During the pregnancy, kids are kind of theoretical. Like, you know they're, you know they're there. You can see that. It's, it's kind of obvious. It's hard to miss. But you don't, or at least I didn't, you know, get a real sense of connection there. It just, it just wasn't there. But when they're born and when this tiny little child is put in your arms, I mean, speaking for myself, I, I was taken aback at the depth of, of, of emotion that... Uh, and feeling that I had, oh, you know, all of a sudden there's this wave of uh, feelings of love and protectiveness float over me for this tiny little child I was just meeting. It was, it was utterly overwhelming. And, and what John is saying is that is how God feels for you. That's how God feels for each of his children, for you. Now, not fallibly and imperfectly like every human dad, but perfectly and eternally and wonderfully. Because he has chosen to make you his. We are children of God. And therefore, when we stand before him, as we all certainly will one day, there's no uncertainty, there's no shame, there's no shrinking back because we're getting to meet our dad. I mean, we get that rush of fear, don't we? When, when we get called unexpectedly into the boss's office, you get that feeling, what have I done? What's, what's going to happen? Or even worse, the principal's office. What, what sort of trouble am I in now? But not with God. Not with God. On the day that you're called to meet him, you can stand and you will stand before him without any fear, without any worry or any uncertainty because he's your dad. You're going home. What will that day bring then? Well, John says it will bring glory because we will be seen for who we are. Look at chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
You know, it's, it's, it, it actually, it's no wonder that the world doesn't really understand Christians or doesn't really understand Christianity because when you actually stop back and think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, we do look kind of weird. We make all these choices which are hard to rationalise. I mean, who wants to give up their Sunday morning sleep in? Who wants to give up evenings throughout the week or, you know, a percentage of your income or, or, or time or effort? Who wants to limit themselves from all these great-looking things voluntarily? Uh, who needs to believe in a man in the sky to feel safe? It, it, it looks nuts, doesn't it? For now. Because one day, it will be shown to be the most rational, the most logical thing of all. That's what John's telling us here. He's, he's saying, now the world looks at, us and looks at us and said, why would you ever want to live as a Christian? What's the point? But on that day when Jesus returns, they'll say, we get it. It makes perfect sense now. Because then they're going to see the truth when Jesus returns. For what we are now, God's children, will then be revealed fully for all to see. And we will be finally and beautifully transformed into the full family likeness, glorious and pure as Jesus is glorious and pure and eternal. And then in that moment, all of those odd choices that we've done, the, for the strange things from a worldly point of view, all of them are going to make perfect sense finally. It's going to be obvious. We've been living for a heavenly reality. We've been living for a heavenly father. That makes sense of all the choices that we make now. So will the world scorn? Will it be confused? <laughs> Absolutely. Need you be shocked by that? Or disheartened? No. Because you know who you are. You know who you are. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you are God's child, destined to stand confident on that day he returns, knowing that there you'll be transformed and made to look like him, shown once for all what he has done for you and what he has done in you. So live a life, continue living a life that only makes sense in light of that eternity. Live a life that only makes sense in light of Jesus' return. Look to eternity. Look to that heavenly reality and live that life. It will look strange now. It will be incomprehensible to all people, lots of people around you. And it will look perfectly right when Jesus returns. But the question then is, how do you know that you are a child of God? How, how can you be sure that God has done this for you? How can you know absolutely? Well, John says it's very simple. You look like Dad. You bear the family resemblance. Uh, John unpacks that idea for us in the, the second half of this passage. He starts at verse 4. Uh, verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Uh, it seems kind of self-evident, doesn't it? Everyone who sins breaks the law. That, that kind of seems pretty straightforward. But it's very important 
John says doing sin, breaking the law, is more than just that. It's actually lawlessness. More than law-breaking, lawlessness. Uh, This is what John Stott says about it. John Stott says, Lawlessness is the essence, not the result of sin. Lawlessness is the essence, not the result of sin. See, what, what, what John's saying, what John Stott is also saying is, lawlessness is a way of life. It's more than just breaking the rules. It's more than just doing the wrong thing. It is a life that is governed by opposition to God, by rebellion against his way of life, his good way. It's more than just individual sins. It's a pattern. It's rejection of the lawgiver. Now, as we've seen throughout 1 John, that's a desperate and terrible place to be. We've seen, haven't we, that God is light, God is life. And so to be apart from him and in rebellion against him is a horrible place to be. But God doesn't leave people there. He has sent Jesus to break people out of that place. And that's what John tells us again in verse 5. But you know that he, that's Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. See, Jesus has come to take away that sin, to take away that lawlessness, to snap us out of that path of life, out of sin as he is out of sin, to be sinless. Look at verse 6. No one who lives in him, that is Jesus again, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. His people, that's telling us, will be sinless. Now, to explain that for us, some people have said, well, this is referring then to habitual sin. You know, uh, yes, Christians, they say, do sin, but Christians don't get into the habits of sin. But I don't think that's right. (laughs) Because I know lots of Christians, (laughs) I've met lots of Christians, and I know that Christians do commit habitual sin. Christians get stuck in patterns of sin that they find very hard to break. And so it can't be right then to say that, well, simply being stuck in habitual sin is the marker of not being a Christian or not being in Jesus. That's not what John is saying here. Instead, the key to understand what John is saying is that idea of being lawless, that idea of being opposed to God or governed by opposition to God. Because what John's saying then is, no one who has believed in Jesus, that is, seen him or known him, will be governed by sin, will be ruled by sin because Jesus has come to break them out of that. See, what John is saying is there's, there's only two types of people in the world. There are those who are ruled by sin, governed by its ways, in lawlessness, and there are those who are sinless, not perfect, as we're going to see, but who have been snapped out of lawlessness by Jesus. And at the end of the day, the difference then is... Jesus. Um, maybe, maybe we can think of it like this. Uh, maybe we can say our lives are a bit like computers. Uh, most of you have a computer. I think probably all of you have a computer. And you know your computer is run by an operating system. Um, if you've got a, a, a PC, it's run by Windows, probably. Um, if you've got a Mac, it's, I think it's some incomprehensible system called OS X or something, something like that. A different type of operating system. But a computer can only run one at a time, either Windows or OS X or something similar. 
the two operating systems, they may look very similar. They may do very similar things. But only one of them can rule a computer at any particular time. Only one of them uh, can be in that computer. Only one of them can be underlying everything that that computer does. What John is saying is, we were under the sin operating system. We were under lawlessness. That was the framework of our lives. That was guiding what we did. It didn't make us depraved in everything that we did. It was not that as if every deed was, was morally re reprehensible. But what it did mean was that everything we did, whether it was good or not, was in rebellion against God. Because our whole life was heading away from him. But Jesus changes our operating system to righteousness, to Christ-likeness. How, how does he do that? Well, first, he deletes that old system. It's there in verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's Jesus' job. He came in to destroy the devil's work, to delete that old sin system in us, to wipe out what was there. What does he do then? Well, then he reinstalls a new system. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God's will will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. See, that's what Jesus does. He brings into us a new system, a system of righteousness, of sinlessness, of life. Like Jesus, live to and for God. So is John saying we become instantly sinless and instantly perfect? Well, no, of course not. John's already said that that's entirely impossible. But what he is saying is the direction and the structure and the governing principle of our life is changed. What is this new governing principle or, or system? Well, we're told there it's God's seed. Uh, the, the word is sperma in the Greek. I mean, you get the picture. It's, it's a metaphor. We're, we might say today um, yeah, God's blood is running through our veins. That, that's kind of our equivalent to the, to the Greek saying. God's blood is running through our veins. What John's saying is not only were you legally adopted into God's family, but actually you've been organically brought into his family as well. You are organically his children. His blood is running in your veins. We live like him and for him because we are his and he is in us. That's what Jesus does. His death kills the old, his life reinstates the new and he does it for you, for each of his children, for all who believe. So how do you know that you're his child? How can you be sure? Well, you can see it. Oh, you know what it's like when you, you go into a, a cafe or a shop and you stand there, you need some help, but you, you can't immediately see um, who the employees are. You know, they're not wearing distinctive uniforms. It, it doesn't take long, does it? It doesn't take long to work out who works there and who's a customer. You can see it in what they do. You can see it in how they move and in the things that they, they, they do. You can figure it out. And so too for us. You can see who are God's children. We can be recognised by what we do, 
by the adoption, this change that Jesus has made, by the way that transforms and drives and shapes our lives. Now let's be clear, what John is saying in this passage is not, since you're a child, act like one. I mean, that's, that's certainly true, <laughs> definitely true, but it's not the point of this passage. John's point is, this is how you know you are a child. This is how you know you are a child. You look like one. You act like one. What John is saying is, look at your life. Engage in some self-reflection. Is there a desire for God in you? Now, I'm not saying is there a perfect desire, but is there a desire for God in you? Do you find impulses that drive you towards God, even if they're small? Do you find yourself doing things because of God? If so, it's not because you've changed your mind about him or have come to this great understanding of him. It's because he is in you. Because he's changed your operating system. Because his seed, his blood is running through you. It's not a sign that maybe you've done something right or are doing something right. Uh, it's a sign that he is doing something right in you. That he has made you his. Let's be, let's be really clear on this. We are not looking for perfection. But direction. We're not looking for perfection, but direction, a life headed towards God. So I think we, we, we fall into the trap, don't we, of thinking to ourselves, well, if I really was a child of God, then I, surely I would be more like that or more like them or, or different in this way. But that's not true. <laughs> I mean, a baby, an infant... It is no less a child, even though they're incapable of doing anything. They're equally a child. We are not looking for a flawless life. We are not looking for a, you know, this amount of obedience. We are looking for a life that is heading in a family direction, that is heading in a Godward direction, even just in baby steps. That feeling, I, I want to learn more about God. That, that impulse or voice, I don't think this is what God wants or I don't think this, this would please God. That drive, I, I feel like I should talk with God. I feel like I should meet with his people. Be very clear, that is not your good morality uh, or good upbringing coming through. That is God in you. That is your new nature as his child being worked out by him in you. Do you love like he does? Do you look like him, even imperfectly, even in very small ways? Then celebrate and be confident because he has done this life-changing work in you to make you his own, to make you his child, someone who won't stand before him one day in fear but in absolute joy knowing you are receiving the inheritance he has promised to all his children. And so remain in him. Uh, that's, that's the line right from the top. Uh, in verse 28, continue in him, it's that, that word again. Remain in him. Dwell in him. Stay close to him. Don't give doubts or, or fears a foothold, but know who you are. And therefore know where you're going. 
You don't need God to put a mark on your forehead. He's done something far better. He's put a mark in your heart. He's written his name on your birth certificate. You are his. And he lives in you. So live confidently. Not in fear, not in doubt, but in joy. Gladly continuing in him. Gladly looking for him in all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do confess that so often we give in to fears, uh, we're attacked by doubts and uncertainties, so often we let them rule us or or paralyse us and we worry, we give in to anxiety. Father, we just thank you for passages like this which give us that confidence that we need which give us certainty that you have acted for us in Jesus. You have done what we couldn't do for ourselves. You have changed us. You have lavished your love on us. You have made us your children. You have destined us for life forever. Father, help us to see this in our own lives. Help us to see the difference that you are making in us and therefore be confident and live confidently for you. Lord, help defend us against doubts and fears so that we would draw close to you and stay in you gladly and joyfully and boldly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are coming to the end of our service. and I want to just close with some words uh, that remind us Uh, what God is doing and what God will continue to do for us, for all his people, until that day that he returns. This is how Jude closes his short letter. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. God is the one who keeps you. God is the one who both calls you home and sees that you get there. So praise him and live confidently for him. That's the end of our service. I just want to thank you again all for coming. Uh, I hope it's been an encouragement for you. Uh, I'd encourage you in the week ahead as Uh, you head back into school life and normal life after school holidays to keep reflecting on these words uh, and look ahead as well. Look ahead to next week, uh, to the the next few verses of 1 John. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 11 uh, through 24. Have a read of it. Look at some of the questions that it raises. Uh, Think about it and come prepared for next week. I'm going to see you uh, then.